If you'd like to open up your Bible or take out your phone and open up to Micah chapter 5, we're going to be in the prophet Micah again this morning as we continue our series on this ancient prophet. I uh, just got back from a couple of weeks on the Colorado River in the Grand Canyon and with my oldest daughter, Chloe, and it was extraordinary, a wonderful trip. I'm grateful to John who uh, kept the fort down while I was away and uh, others who stepped in and just grateful for our community. It's always a pleasant thing to go away and to come back and be really thankful uh, for where you're coming back to. As beautiful as the Grand Canyon is, um, I wouldn't want to live there, and uh, it's great to be back here. The, the thing I noticed most, and Chloe was the same, we, we got back from two weeks out completely off the grid. We were at the Phoenix airport after a short flight from Flagstaff to Phoenix, and we'd gotten some dinner, and, and then I noticed this blaring pop music being like piped into the airport from every which way and realized that the thing I observed and missed most about just where we were was the lack of noise. And I was just overwhelmed with the sense of noise that's constantly around us in our world. It's the noise of music. We got into the lift the next morning. We took the red eye back and got back at 7 in the morning and Chloe went to school. Um, but in the lift on the way home from the airport, he was playing a morning talk show that was discussing the latest and greatest in the lives of celebrities. And I thought to myself, I didn't miss this. <laughs> I checked Google News and realized that's mostly nothing. Like, there wasn't really anything going on while I was away. And I just was amazed at how much noise. And then bombarded by advertisements. Every place I looked, hadn't seen one for two weeks. And then looking everywhere, somebody's clamoring for my money, my attention telling me some story about how I'm going to be great through their product. And I was just amazed at the noise. Um, there's one special part of the trip that I was, we were in an unnamed side canyon, and I, with a buddy on the trip, hiked up to the, the top of the side canyon. And um, there were, you know, three, 400-foot cliffs all around us, and we're looking out over the Colorado to the other side of the canyon, which is just extraordinary. And the, and the thing that was profound was the stillness, actually. Felt a little bit like Elijah when he escapes and goes to the mountaintop and there's the big storm and God's not there and there's the big wind and God's not there and then there's this still small voice. And um, it was a holy moment for me of just being in a place where I was, it, it, there was so much evidence of motion, canyons that had been carved out uh, over millennia. There, there were trees that, you know, were kind of just small, but, but there in front of me, there were rock piles on the side of the, the canyon, the side canyon, and yet everything was still. It was like a still life. We're talking about peace today. And there was a sense in which there was real peace out in the wilderness, away from all the noise, um, but it's contrived in some ways. Obviously, it's not the normal life that we lead, and, and uh, I think we're all longing for peace, the prophet Micah says in verse 5, and he shall be their peace. He shall be their peace. Which is the gospel in a nutshell. And that's what we get to talk about today. Because we all, all of us know the tumultuous nature of our own hearts, frankly. Um, I trust I'm not the only one in the room who gets anxious or tired or depressed or manic. Who's beset by trials that I didn't want. Um, we long for peace. I know you long for peace. I do, too. Peace not only personally and in our own hearts, but peace globally and geopolitically, constantly reading stories of conflict and trial. 
And Micah and his people were in the midst of trial. It was the end of the 8th century. 20 years earlier, the northern kingdom had fallen to the superpower of the day, Assyria. Crushed the northern kingdom, took all the people off into exile. And about 20 years later, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, is, is pressing in on Judah, the southern kingdom, and ransacking town after town after town. And the noose is getting tighter and tighter around Hezekiah's neck. And it's about that time that this word this new oracle in chapter 5 of Micah gets spoken or written by Micah. And it's a word of peace, a word of hope. We saw last week this great oracle about the one-day future shalom that includes not only Israel, but God. The God of Israel is the God of the nations, and the nations will gather together around the mountain of the Lord and hear his word, and they'll beat their swords into plowshares, and it'll be a time of no more conflict but of peace. It's this grand vision of God's determined nature to bring about blessing. A God whose last word will not be judgment because mercy is the greater part of his character that outweighs his judgment. And his determination to bless and to bring life is what Micah speaks about in chapter 4. And you get this beautiful vision that John dealt with last week. But then what we get today in this word about peace and this word about a person is really the how, how this is going to come about, this grand view of peace in the world that we all long for. It's going to come about through this particular figure that we're going to examine a little bit. We're three questions we're going to ask. Where did he come from? What did he do? And then what does that mean for us? Where did he come from? What did he do? And what does that mean for us? So where, where did he come from? This is verse 2, if you have the passage open. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So where did he come from? He didn't come from New York City, or Los Angeles, or Dallas, or Washington, D.C. It's more like he came from Strawberry Point, Iowa, or Fargo, North Dakota, or Moscow, Idaho. Bethlehem is essentially, no offense to those towns, nowhere on the map. It's too little, and that word too little means inferior. It communicates something about weakness or inferiority, a word that was often used to compare the younger to the older, which in the ancient Near Eastern culture, the younger was always weaker and inferior. Too little to be among the clans of Judah. It's in the sticks. But God says, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler of Israel. So this lowly, disrespected, insignificant place will be the place of origin for the new ruler of Israel who will bring peace. And this is such because this means that his greatness, which we read about in verse 4, could only happen through the sovereign grace of God. It wasn't a natural unfolding of one born to noble parents in a noble city. But it was the work of God to take the foolish things in the world to shame the wise, the lowly and despised things, the things that are not, to shame the things that are. God works in his kingdom in upside-down ways. And Micah's saying that that reflects the power of his grace. This is the way he works. And I want to sit with this for just a minute. In a world that attaches so much significance to pedigree and place 
and name and resume and income. In a world where there's an in-crowd of players who are making it and a lot of disposable people who aren't, God beautifully chooses to work outside of that system. He chooses those things that are not to shame those things that are. We see this throughout the biblical narrative in his repeated choice of the younger to be the promised heir. Isaac. Jacob. And even Joseph. And of course, David. Remember the story about David in 1 Samuel 16? That's actually being picked up here in Micah 5 because a huge thing that this is saying is that the, this new ruler of Israel, he's the beginning, a new beginning for the people of David, for the promise to David. Remember the story of David, Samuel? There's a bad king, Saul, and he's not really making it work. And so Samuel longs for a new king, just like Micah under a compromised king in that day. And a compromised system is longing for a new king. And so Samuel goes to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, 1 Samuel 16. And what does Jesse do? Jesse decides to get all of his sons ready and gussed up and ready to see Samuel to see which one of them might be the new king of Israel. And so he brings out his firstborn. And he brings out his secondborn. And I, I can't remember how many they go down. But Samuel's like, no, it's none of these guys. Not, none of them are going to be the king. Do you have any more? And, and Jesse's like, well, I got my youngest. He's out in the field shepherding the flock. Shepherding that comes up in this passage too. He says, well, bring him here. And then in that beautiful, uh, God says that one, that young boy, that's going to be the instrument who will bring rescue and redemption and peace to my people. And Samuel anoints David. God chooses the things that are not to shame the things that are. This is the way he's always worked. So how does he do it when the real ruler comes? This everybody knows this is, it's not a secret. It's pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the ruler of Israel that Micah 5 points to. And I think it's phenomenal. We don't talk about this enough in the church, but it is amazing that these words were written 700 years before the birth of Jesus because they speak very particularly and specifically about him. Let us not forget that God is faithful to his word and gave Micah long ago a vision of what would become the case when Jesus was born. But, but God chooses Elizabeth and John and then Mary and Joseph to bring his king into the world. These were people on the outside. These weren't people on the inside. When Nathaniel meets Jesus in John chapter 1, he says, do you remember what he says? Can anything good come from Nazareth? That's a podunk town too. Nothing good comes. That's not where a leader comes from. This is the point is this is how God works. And so there's a couple things I want to say about this. First, if you're here... And you are one of those people who gets over-impressed with status and resume. And I think to some degree, this is all of us sitting here, just to be clear. Either in the way you think or in what you pursue. If we're in that camp, we, we need this little word about Bethlehem, Ephrathah, the one that's too little to be listed in the clans of Judah. We need this word to rebuke us. Because if we're in that camp and we're constantly focused on the bigger and the better, do you know what we're also doing? We're overlooking all the lowly and insignificant and the people who won't ratchet us up one more notch 
in our social network. They can't not be together. Those things go together. But who is it, as we've looked at many times, who is it that God has his special eyes set upon in our world? It's all those people. It's all those people on the outside of the systems of importance and power in our present culture. It's all those people that God longs for them to know his love and his grace and his care. So some of us in wrestling with this little point need to repent today of our infatuation with status and title and wealth and power. And yet there's another group I think that's here, maybe to some degree this represents all of us too, is those of us who feel poor, those of us who constantly fight the narrative that we're a nobody and that we're nothing and that we're not worthy, who constantly feel that pointing finger of accusation and who believe all the lies that we're fed, maybe from parents that were dysfunctional and didn't love us right, or maybe from a past employer who was really unkind that we're never going to amount to anything and that we should just give up, and who hear those voices of taking one's own life, the kind of ultimate end of life in our head. If, if that's you this morning, then I want you to know that the way that God works, as Micah shows us in this text, is through people like you. In God's economy, there are no insignificant people, and there are no insignificant places, and there is no one who's beyond the reach of his work, his might, his power, to be embraced and to be used by him, which is the greatest privilege of all, for all of us. Not to get a long resume, not to have great success in the workplace, but to be utilized, to be used, to have him come alongside of us and embrace us, and use it. So if you're here and you're on that, you're like, I am from Bethlehem, I'm from nowhere, and I've got nothing, then I want you to know that that puts you in a special place in many ways in God's kingdom. To be used by him. Maybe what you need to repent of is your lack of faith or just your lack of trusting his grace and recognize that he's a gracious father who longs to work in you and through you. Whatever the problem that you're, you might feel like I'm dealing with something right now that disqualifies me from any future service in God's kingdom. And I want you to know that's not true. God can work powerfully and wonderfully. So that's where he comes from. And this whole coming forth from of old, from ancient, from ancient days is probably not a, a, a statement about the incarnation as much as we'd like for it to be. It's probably a statement about the Davidic king and about the Davidic promise that came centuries before Micah's writing, saying he will be born from of old, from ancient of days. He's going to enter into that old story and refresh it in a new way and bring about a time of peace. So what will he do? That's the second question. Verse 4. Therefore he shall give... Uh, sorry, that was verse 3. Verse 4. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. The idea of standing here is used, that word can have connotations in a sort of minor use category, but it has connotations of a king entering into his rulership, his new rulership. And it carries connotations of being unmovable or firm, standing still. He shall stand, unable to be moved, permanent and certain. 
And his rulership, that means his rulership cannot be taken or shaken. It's, it's firm and lasting. It's permanent. It's not like any rulership or, or authority or leadership that we understand or know or experience today because everything we know is fading away. It's going from strength to weakness, from vibrancy to dilapidation. And yet his will be firm. And this key word, and he will shepherd his flock. This was a common metaphorical cliche in the ancient Near Eastern world to connote ideal kingship. But it's got deeper meaning and special significance in the biblical story. In light of David's story, because clearly this new figure, the Messiah, is picking up the story of David. And David shepherded before he became king. He was a shepherd. What do shepherds do? Two things that our shepherd does. Shepherds guard the flock, which means shepherds are aware of the enemies and they defeat and conquer enemies to create a place of safety and security for their flock. When David became, well actually before David was anointed by Samuel, we have this wonderful story of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. When David puts to shame the the enemy of God's people, who is mocking them. And when David's talking to Saul about whether he can go defeat this Goliath Philistine, this enemy of Israel, Saul says, you're not able to go against the Philistine and fight with them, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. Listen to what he says to Saul. He says, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defiled the armies of the living God. Shepherds destroy enemies that would destroy the flock, and David says, that's what I did to the lions and the bears, that's what I'll do to Goliath. What is the greater shepherd, the greater David? What does he do? The one who fulfills Micah 5. He defeats the devil. Who is your enemy? It's not Goliath. It's the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And it's the prince of darkness. It's the prince of this world. It's the devil himself. And Jesus defeats the devil. Binds the strong man, in the words of Mark 3, to liberate us, his people, to protect us, to shepherd over us. Jesus, of course, says in John 10 that he's the good shepherd. So he protects us and he provides. Shepherds provide. They they provide resources and and, and plenty. And what does Jesus say to those in his ministry? He says, I'm the living water. If you drink from me, guess what? You're never going to be thirsty again. Or in John 6, I'm the bread of life and he who believes in me will never be hungry and he who trusts in me will never thirst. And what do we celebrate week after week at this table? Communion, the Eucharist, the great Thanksgiving that God in Christ has provided true nourishment, true sustenance for us, his children, that we will never lack because of all that he's provided. He will shepherd his flock. And that then provides the third question. So what does this mean for us? Three things in this text and three things in the ministry of Jesus that we see. The first, interestingly, in verse 3, is reconciliation. When the shepherd and the king defeats the enemies, what does it allow? It allows for those who have been scattered across the globe, the diaspora, to come back together. So verse 3, and the rest of his brothers, once he's born, 
The rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. They'll come back together. When this new king arises, the people of God will come back together. The the mind-blowing thing is, of course, for Micah, his scope was only that the people of Israel would come back together. But what happens when Jesus comes? And when Paul taps into this peace in Ephesians 2, as we read earlier, when, when Paul says that he himself is our peace, the whole context of that passage is that Jew and Gentile have been brought together in Jesus to be reconciled into one new humanity. It's amazing that the vision of Micah, of the, the rule of the shepherd, would bring about a one new family and reconcile the previously irreconciled people. Why? Because sin has been defeated. What is it that pushes us apart from one another? What is it that drives our othering of people? Whether it's different ethnicity, different race, different class, different education, different income. Why do we do that? Different gender? Because of sin. That's the native work of sin. Well, Jesus defeats the power of sin. And in defeating the power of sin, opens up a way for all of us, brothers and sisters, to come back together under one head. So it produces this reality of reconciliation. That his people would be one and united under him. It brings about security. And they shall dwell secure, verse 4. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. What is it that takes away security? It's a lack of power. Why do the rich feel secure? Because they feel like they have power. Our king is powerful. And it says he will be great to the ends of the earth. And because he's great and powerful, because he's defeated our enemy, we can dwell secure. And the third thing is there shall be peace. Verse 5. The night before he was crucified, Jesus said, My peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you. He says, In this world, and this is is where I'd like to end, in this world you will have trouble. We have a new king. He brings about reconciliation, brings about security, brings about peace, brings those things to us. And not just when you're on the Grand Canyon and there's no noise, but when you're riding the tea on your late to work and you've got too much to do, when your brother-in-law is dying of cancer, when your marriage is hurting, when you're struggling with unfulfilled dreams, Right in those moments, this king is on the throne. This king has defeated the enemies. And he offers to you and to me peace. Real peace. Lasting peace. It's paradoxical because life certainly at times feels very tumultuous, to say the least. And some of you may be feeling that way this morning in significant ways in your lives. It's interesting when Paul, at the height of the New Testament in Romans 8, he says, look, and he lists all these things, famine, danger, nakedness, sword. He says, in all of these things, we are what? We are more than conquerors. There's a paradox in the Christian life. It's interesting, Jesus says, my peace I give to you, right before he goes to the God-forsaken place of the cross. Even his life had that paradox. And yet, that's the offer, that's the opportunity, that's the gift of a king who's sitting on the throne is to give us his peace 
in the midst of a world of conflict and turmoil and trial that you and I cannot escape from until the day that we go to be with him in glory. And yet in the midst of that place, this prophecy, this promise, which is fulfilled in Jesus, is truer than true. Because he reigns and rules. Because he has been made great. Because he's on the throne. Because your greatest enemy has been defeated. And because anything that may touch you. So Luther says at the end of his wonderful hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. The body they may kill. Or let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. I can't remember. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. You're already there. And that's what allows you to have peace in Jesus. This one from Bethlehem. That by the sovereign grace of God. Became king. And provides us. The ability to be brought back together. To be in a place of security. And to have peace. In a world of great trial. Micah saw this when the noose was tightening. We get to see it every day when whatever noose it is feels like it's tightening around us. He's on the throne. It's a great promise. Let's pray.